Unsurprisingly, Bonhoeffer talks often about love in his ethics, but he is insistent in a way that few people are, even few theologians are, that we must be careful to know what we mean when we speak of love, and that we cannot assume that we know what we mean, or that others know what we mean when we speak of love. And I want to attend to some of his struggles to face that difficulty, working through his ethics. But before I do that, I want to begin with a couple of sermons that he preached in London during his time in London in 1934 from 1 Corinthians 13. The first sermon in the series is dealing with 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That passage. Listen to, I'm, I'm not going to read the entire sermon, but, but listen to the ways in which this account of love takes shape and how it changes later. And in some ways it doesn't change at all. The reasons that have moved me, this is how he begins the sermon, the reasons that have moved me to preach this series of sermons on the 13th chapter of the first letter of the Corinthians are these. First, this chapter is one that we need in our congregation, just as it was needed by the church in Corinth. What does it mean, after all, to be a Christian church community if in all the fine things that happen here, one thing is not completely clear, indeed self-evident, that the members of a church community are to love one another? Right. So he's saying, I'm preaching this here first and foremost because... We're a church community, and our first calling, the calling that makes us who we are, that should be, as he says, completely clear, indeed self-evident, is that we must love one another. The second reason I had for choosing this text is the particular situation of our German churches. Whether or not we want to see it, whether or not we think it is right, the churches are caught up in a struggle for their faith such as we have not seen for hundreds of years. This is a struggle, whether or not we agree, over our confession of Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Redeemer of this world. But anyone who inwardly and outwardly joins in the struggle for this confession knows that such a struggle for faith carries a great temptation with it, the temptation of being too sure of oneself, of self-righteousness and dogmatism, which also means the temptation to be unloving toward, towards one's opponent. And yet this opponent can never truly be overcome, if not through love, since no opponent is ever overcome except by love. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How many people have truly been overcome by these words of Jesus? Even of the most passionate battle for the faith, it could well be said, but had it not love, it would be nothing. And that, he says, brings him to the third reason, which is the need for further reformation in the churches of the Reformation. He begins in this section of the sermon to, to praise Protestant preaching, the preaching of the power of faith in Jesus Christ alone, and hearing the message of the Bible in its quote-unquote purity. But he insists that now that word is, is most often misheard. To love God does not just mean that when things are going badly for us, we say, God will help us again. That truly amounts to a feeble and puny faith. To love God means to rejoice in God, to think and pray gladly to God, to love being alone in God's presence, to wait impatiently for God, 
for every word and every request. It means not causing God sorrow, but rejoicing simply that there is God, that we can know and have and speak with and live with God, to love God, and for love of God, to love our neighbors as well, in our disillusioned Protestant church. Do we still understand this? So he's raising the point that there had been such a preaching about faith that there, and these are my words, not his, but the shift of attention had gone away from God, as God, to theology or to piety or to a theology of piety. But in the process, love had been lost. And love, as he, he will say again and again, referencing 1 Corinthians 13, is what matters. So those are the reasons he takes it up. And, of course, as with everything he's written, it's worth attending to all of it, if and when you have the time. But I, I want to, to jump toward the end of the sermon, after he's praised love and then attends to the shock of Paul's warning about all the ways in which you can act seemingly righteously and yet not have love, and, and what happens to us as we, we hear those warnings. That devastates, he's talking here specifically about the line, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels and do not have love, I am nothing. That devastates and paralyzes us like a bolt of lightning. That is the possibility we hadn't foreseen, that even our holiest words could become unholy, godless, and mean. If there is no heart in them, if they are without love. Even our holiest words could become unholy, godless, and mean if there's no heart in them. Then he pushes even more deeply into the terror of that warning, the, the, the terribleness of that, warning, of that warning to even have prophetic powers and to understand all mysteries and yet not have love. Insight, knowledge, truth without love is nothing. It is not even truth. Truth without love is nothing. It is not even truth, for truth is God, and God is love. So truth without love is a lie. It is nothing. Speaking the truth in love, says Paul in another letter, truth just for oneself, truth spoken in enmity and hate, is not truth but a lie, for truth brings us into God's presence and God is love. Truth is either the clarity of love, or it is nothing. And so he, he's here emphasizing a theme that will come up later in ethics, that speaking the truth is always an act of love, and that lying is always loveless. And you can technically speak the truth in ways that are spiritually unloving, and that is, in fact, a lie. We'll, we'll come to that, not in this conversation, but, but in, in some later, in one of the later talks. Then he comes to what he finds to be the most terrible riddle. Those are his words, terrible riddle of all. And that is this statement about faith. And you can see here how he's, he's come right to the heart of that third reason for the sermon. That is the need for the reform of the Reformed churches, the ongoing reform of the Reformed churches, because of the ways in which their preaching of faith has turned into a loveless act, a love, 
unloving performance. We've left out a little phrase, one that opens up a terrible riddle to us. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I have all faith, what does that mean? What chord does that strike within us? All faith, all confidence, certitude that I am with God and God is with me in all the sorrows and anxieties of my life. All faith, so that I no longer have to be afraid of what tomorrow may bring. Is this not what we pray for every day? That would be enough for us that we could hold on to until the end of our lives. And yet here it comes again. But have not love, I am nothing. What a baffling thing. Imagine a person who had all faith and still did not love, did not love God and his sister or her brother or sister. What a dark abyss we are looking into now, a faith that is self-glorifying and self-centered in its very foundations, in which I am looking only out for myself, a godless faith, believing not for the sake of God, but for my own sake. God, keep us from such an abyss, such superstition, which fools us into thinking that we are with you, when we are really far away from you, God, who will help us escape such danger? There's so much I, I want to remark on here, but one is notice how he he faces this abyss and then immediately moves to prayer. And I don't think this is stylized. I think there's something instinctive about it for him, that to face the horror of this riddle, the possibility of someone having all faith and no love, that, that terror turns him to God, right? Immediately throws him back, literally, into prayer so that he now, instead of addressing the congregation, is speaking to God and speaking to God about the congregation and himself as one. Keep us from such an abyss, such superstition, which fools us into thinking that we are with you when we are really far away from you. And then he, he calls that up that question, which is resonant with Romans 7, who will, who will help us escape? No, there is no holding back, he says. It keeps getting worse to our despair. Not only is there faith without God and without love, but also good deeds that look like works of love, but have nothing to do with love. If I give everything to the poor, if I deny myself and make sacrifices as only love can do and still do not have love, but rather make the sacrifices out of a heart full of vanity and selfishness, thinking that such sacrifices would fool God and my neighbor about what kind of heart I have, I gain nothing. So what can the devout person give in the end beyond his or her naked life itself as a sacrifice for God, for Christ, as a martyr? If I give my body to be burned, if I give proof of how seriously devout I am and seal it with my death, if I become a martyr for God's cause, God, what grace it would be to die for you, but have not love, I truly gain nothing. And just notice here, this is almost a little more than a decade away from him giving his own life for God. And, and here he cries out, God, what grace it would be to die for you. But if I have not love, I truly gain nothing. If I appear to love God to the extent of sacrificing my life, but still do not really love God, but only myself and my dream of martyrdom and the fame it will bring. The judgment applies even to the martyr. The lack of love plunges him or her into nothingness. So this is, incredibly sobering for him obviously and it should be for us that it what paul is considering here at the beginning of first corinthians 13 is truly terrible truly an abyss that should throw us back on god 
and shatter all of our presumptions about ourselves, all of, all of, all of our naive good feeling, our naively good feeling, our sentimentality about love for God and love for neighbor. So as he winds the sermon down, listen to how he directs their attention and his own. Who can understand this? We might indeed say, who doesn't understand it? Which of us does not see that in all these instances we are the ones who talk big and have knowledge and faith and do good deeds and sacrifice ourselves only for our own sake, without love, without God? Which of us does not see that God must condemn such doings because God is love and wants only our whole undivided love and nothing more? What then is love, this love of God and the other person, it is not words or knowledge or faith, not deeds of love or the sacrifice of our lives, not in the way we think of it. Do we have love? Has judgment already been passed on us too? Let us call upon love, that it may come from God's very self and snatch us from the pit of destruction. O God of all love, come into our confused hearts and save us, because you love us through love. So there's this this turn which he makes, he's, you know, it's unimaginable. And then he says, wait a minute, it's not in fact unimaginable. We all know this to be true all the time of ourselves, that so much of what seems best about us, so much of what others see in us as the best about us is in fact false, is in fact shot through with self-concern, the drive to preserve our image, to make ourselves appear better than we are for whatever reasons many of which are clear to us and many of which are no doubt hidden from us. And so he, he includes everyone in that judgment. He, in a sense, normalizes this experience of living a life of faith and sacrifice and good deeds lovelessly. And then says, what is our hope? Our hope is God, right? So I'm reminded here of, of Jonathan Edwards. You know, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But of course, what Bonhoeffer is saying here is what's terrible is to carry out your life in ways that are false to this living God. What you need is to fall into his hands. And so he cries out, God of love, come into our confused hearts and save us because you love us through love. That's how that sermon ends. A week later, he comes back to this text and addresses the congregation again. And right from the first, he, he reminds them of how he had, what he had heard, what they had heard in the text up to this point. And then he begins in verse 4 and works through verse 7. Last Sunday, we learned that despite all our ideals, our seriousness, our knowledge, and our faith, even our good deeds and sacrifice, our lives are worth nothing if we do not have that one thing that Paul calls love. So it could be that our whole life is meaningless, even if we do our full duty, earnestly and with all our might, because it is done not out of love, but out of pride or fear or the vanity of our hearts, and that all our piety is not worth a penny either if people say of it that it has not love. But if all human life and activity amount to nothing without love, we are confronted with the question, what is this love on which everything depends? What is this love without which all of us are nothing? Then he, he makes the argument that no one lives entirely without love. And I, I think this is 
a sign of how at times Bonhoeffer can be, and I've remarked on this, I'm sure in every talk up to this point, there are times in which he can, he can work in these like broad sweeping gestures, which he's, he's talking in generalizations, not abstractions, but generalizations that are meant to draw our attention to something concrete. But when he turns to the reality of the lived Christian life or the reality of human experience, he is often very attentive to those details. And you can see that here, right? No one lives entirely without love. And he celebrates that, and not just in his sermons. I mean, you can see it in his letters as well. I mean, he loved life, and he loved to see others living life and living it with them. And this is what he says to, to Betka in that passage that I, that I read at the beginning of these conversations, that he, he, he most wanted to, to sit at the table and eat and, he, and sing with his friends. So he's attentive to that, right? That there's no, there's, it's not possible to live a human life entirely without love. But at the same time, there is a way in which that love can go wrong. And not only can, but has and always does. And he's here attentive to the ways in which self-love, which is natural, is also, as he says, clever. It knows that it is only a distorted likeness of love's original image, so it pretends, veils itself, and dresses itself up in a thousand different forms, trying to look like real love. And it exceeds so well that human eyes can hardly tell the difference between the real thing and the fake. Self-love disguises itself as love of our neighbor or our country, as public charity, as love of humankind, trying not to be recognized for what it really is. Yet Paul cuts through all of self-love's attempts to cloud the issue and to deceive and compels and it to cloud the issue and to deceive and compels it to face its proper responsibility, and this is a word that's going to come up in ethics again and again, by drawing for us for, for it, for us, his picture of what God considers real love. Each of the characteristics listed here can be interpreted somewhat differently on its own, but taken together. There is no doubt that they break the spell of self-love and let the love of God and one's neighbor become a reality. And then he makes this almost childlike observation about the text that I think is remarkably powerful. He says, where is this taking place? The text does not say a loving person does this or that. It says love does this or that. Who is this love? Whom are we talking about? How do we know it? Before we answer that, let us listen to what is being said. And then he turns to these descriptions. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I'll come back in a moment and sketch some of what he says here. But I, I don't want to lose touch with his attentiveness to the fact that love has this characteristic. That it's not the loving person. It's not you or me being loving and therefore acting in these ways, but it's love itself, the, the one who is love, who is doing all of this in us and with us, for us. So at the end of this sermon, he comes back to that very question, as he said he would, who is this love? 
if it is not he who bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, and indeed had to endure all things all the way to the cross, who has never looked for his own gain, never become bitter, never kept count of the evil done to him, and thus was overpowered by evil? Who even prayed for his enemies on the cross and thereby totally overcame evil? Who is this love which Paul was talking about other than Jesus Christ himself? Who else could it be if not he? What better symbol could there be standing over this entire passage than the cross? And that's how he ends the sermon with this attention on Jesus. And I, I think before we turn to the ethics, it's, it's really critical to stress that for Bonhoeffer, again, there's no abstraction. We're always talking about Jesus. As I said in an earlier talk, I mean, all we're waiting for is Jesus. In Advent, what we're expecting is Jesus. And, and an Advent reading of Bonhoeffer's ethics is, is always a reading that's recalling us to the face of Jesus Christ, the mother, uh, the son of, of Mary, his mother, the victim of Pilate, the governor, the, the friend of Judas and Peter and John, the, that one, right, who comes to us as the life of God. And whether he's talking about 1 Corinthians 13 or Matthew 5 to 7 or Romans 8, it doesn't matter, what, or Exodus 20, whatever passage Bonhoeffer has in front of him, he's always seeing the face of Jesus Christ. And, and that's why his theology and his ethics always remain grounded in the concrete, the specific, the historical, the here and the now, the interpersonal, the real, and, and doesn't float free into abstraction. So that said, let me, let me say just a bit about what he insists on love doing in us. And it, it's quite an astounding sermon in, in terms of what he's, he's claiming. I, I, I encourage all of you at some point to just sit with this sermon for days at a time, read, read it slowly. And then when you're ready, share it, share it with the people you love the most, because I, I think it is, it's as good a, a witness to the text as, as I know. I won't read it all. I'll let, I'll let you find that, but let, let me read just this bit. Now comes the great summing up, which we hardly dare to expound because it is so immensely deep and so vast and so serious. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The focus here is on all things. There is no compromising. It really means anything. Perhaps once in a great moment of our lives, we might say to someone, I'd do anything for you. I'd give up anything for you. I'd bear anything together with you. But even as we say it, we are silently setting the one great condition, as long as you will do the same for me. For love, no such condition exists. And we can hear, and all the way through, whenever you read love, you can read Jesus. For Jesus, no such condition exists. For God, no such condition exists. Love's anything is not subject to any circumstances. It is unconditionally all things. Love bears all things. That means it cannot be frightened by any evil. It can look upon and take in all the horror of human sin. It doesn't look away from what is unbearable. It can stand the sight of blood. It can stand the sight of blood. Love can stand anything. No guilt, no crime, no vice, no disaster is so heavy that love cannot look at it and take it upon itself. For it knows love is still greater than the greatest guilt. 
Love believes all things. And because of that, it can be fooled, but is still in the right. It can be fooled, but it is still in the right. Because of that, one can betray love and lie to it, but still it stands. But who would be foolish enough to believe everything? Isn't that just asking others to take me for a fool? Yes, it would be foolish if I had in mind getting anything for myself with my love. But if I really and truly do not want anything out of it for myself, just to love unconditionally, boundlessly, without prejudice, then it is not foolish at all. Then it is the way to overcome other persons, the way to make them begin to wonder until they turn around and come back. Love believes all things because it cannot do otherwise than believe that in the end, the very final word will be that everyone, yes, everyone, is called to be overcome by love. And this is this is one of the reasons that Bonhoeffer's theology is, is saved by its attention to Jesus. Because if, if he had read this passage as many quote-unquote progressive or quote-unquote liberal liberals do, as if it's a way of living that the loving person can take up, then there have to be limits to it, right? Because we, we are not infinite. We, we are not God. But Jesus is God as a human person. And he is love, and he can do, and does do, and has done, and is doing all of these things. And we can yield ourselves, open ourselves up to joining him in that. So that even if in my own life, I, of course, recognize that there are limits. And this is something, you know, Bonifo will come back to again and again. The, the ways in which I personally have limits set to my life, but I'm bound up with one who has no limit, right? And that's why the confession has to be that it's love that does these things. Love believes, love bears, love hopes, all things. And here he is again, attending to this very particular human reality, right? the detail of human interaction here, that, that could have only come from the way that he's lived with others and that he's received care from others. Has it ever happened to you that you were talking with someone who was considered really bad? Someone who nobody expected ever to do anything right or honest, but you listened to him or her and believed in what he or she was saying? And then the person simply broke down just from being believed and said to you, you are the first person who has believed me in a long time. And that then, that person then, really took heart from your belief in him or her, even if he or she had just been lying to us, right? that you're believing in them. Your belief had the power to kind of awaken the truth of who they were. right? The light that is in them, that is Christ, is enlightened by the Christ-likeness in your treatment of them. And on the other hand, can you remember the despair of someone whom we didn't trust, but who we found out later had been telling us the truth, and who, because of our mistrust, had come to doubt his or her entire faith? After these experiences, one understands why love does not make any distinctions, but with open eyes believes all things, or with blind eyes sees the true future. And what he seems to be calling for here is this kind of pastoral sensitivity to hoping, believing, trusting, all things, because it's worth the risk. If the person is lying to you, if you're being manipulated, then the truth will out in the end. You can't run the risk of destroying the life of your brother and sister in order to protect yourself. That And, and Christ does not. 
take that risk. Love hopes all things. It never gives up on anyone, knowing the day will come when the lost will turn back, will have to return to the love he or she is denied, broken up, shaken off, forgotten, when the sickness finally yields and the person stands erect, healed. Love is like the doctor at the bedside who doesn't give up hope for the patient, and this hope makes the patient take heart. And because love has no other desire than that the patient take heart, it will never give up on him or her, but will keep hoping all things, not just for individual persons, but for a whole people and for a church. If one has not love, then to hope for all things is crazy recklessness and over-optimism. But to hope for all things out of love is the power that a people and a church need in order to stand upright again. This is what we are called to do, to hope so unconditionally that our loving hope can empower others. So that that's his vision of the life of Jesus, the life Jesus has already lived, that life that has ended in that death on Good Friday, that life that has been resurrected in its fullness on Easter, that life that has been poured out to us, that, that I should say, that life that has ascended into, into the rule of all things on Ascension Day, that life that has been poured out on us at Pentecost. Like that, that is the life that's alive in us if the Spirit is in us. And that is the love that should be happening in us, right? So this is 1934, and five to six years later, he takes up the writing of ethics, and you can see the ways in which those convictions are still are still burning in him. But before I say anything about ethics, let me just stop to reflect again on what this means for Advent, right? This is an Advent reading. We're in the season of Advent. We're waiting for Christmas, which is now just a three days away at the time that I'm recording this. This, this waiting for Jesus is also waiting for Jesus to come alive in the people around us, right? the, the people we care for, the people who care for us, and the people who have responsibility for us. And here I'm thinking, obviously, about our politicians, our pastors, our teachers, but I'm thinking also about nurses and police officers and those who take uh, the, the work on the front line of our societies. I think we, we need to recognize that in Advent, we're waiting not only for the coming of Christ as a thing in itself, right? We're waiting for the coming of Christ in all things, we're not waiting for the next point on the timeline, as I keep saying. We're waiting for the coming of Christ that is the humanizing, the, the full realization of personhood that is possible for each one of us, but is possible for each one of us only as we learn to live as love lives in us and as love is lived for us. And... The only way to wait for that to happen in my neighbor is to live that way toward my neighbor. I cannot wait on you to awaken to Christ-likeness if I'm not already acting in Christ-likeness toward you. And I think this is this is some of what Jesus must mean when he when when he teaches us to pray, forgive us as we forgive. Of course, that does not mean that God will withhold forgiveness until we've given it. But it is, I think, to say 
that it is only as we are in the posture of giving that we are actually open up to receiving the gift that is intended for us, the gift that is purposed for us. So with that said, let's come back to ethics and talk a bit about, and we'll start on page 84. This is in the chapter, Ethics as Formation. And here, what Bonifer has to say about love, how it's related to the specific, the real, how it's related specifically to the reality of Jesus and the reality of Jesus' life and death, and then the ways in which the Sermon on the Mount bears witness to that, and the obedience that is called for by that life, by the teaching of Jesus, and then turn to his contrast between Jesus and the Pharisee. And, and then we'll, we'll end the talk with that contrast. So, page 84. Echo homo. Behold God become human. The unfathomable mystery of the love of God for the world. God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. So this, this is the crucial insight. God loves me and you as we are. He loves the real, not the ideal. The specific, not the general. The particular, not the abstraction. The concrete, not the abstraction. The particular is the place where God's love reaches us and touches us. Page 85, God does not seek the most perfect human being with whom to be united, but takes on human nature as it is. Jesus Christ is not the transfiguration of noble humanity, but the yes of God to real human beings, not the dispassionate yes of a judge, but the merciful yes of a compassionate sufferer. In this yes, in other words, God's heart is in this. God's heart is in what he's doing. And in, in that way you can see here, Bonhoeffer's argument that just as there could be, and I think this is implied in, in what Bonhoeffer is arguing here, that just as there can be on our side faith without love, there is theoretically an act of creation and an act of salvation on God's side that is without love. And, and Bonhoeffer wants to, to insist that that is not true, that God is not simply saying yes to us dispassionately. He's saying yes to us as a compassionate sufferer. In this yes, all the life and all the hope of the world are comprised. In the human Jesus Christ, the whole of humanity has been judged. Again, this is not the uninvolved judgment of a judge, but the merciful judgment of one who has borne and suffered the fate of all humanity. Jesus is not a human being, but the human being. What happens to him happens to human beings. It happens to all and therefore to us. The name of Jesus embraces in itself the whole of humanity and the whole of God, which is a theme that we touched on last time. And then you can see on the next page, page 86, he introduces this notion of Pharisaism. The basis contempt for humanity carries on its sinister business under the most holy assertions of love for humanity. So Bonhoeffer is is so keenly aware of the ways in which we can we can posture we we can put on a, a good face and you can hear it in those sermons from first corinthians 13 he knows in part because he's such a good reader of text in part because 
He's been so open before God in prayer, in, in part because he's had such good friends, in part because of all of that God was gifting him to serve us. But he's aware that you, you have to have a kind of holy suspicion about appearances. And he says that there, there is a way in which there's a deep contempt for humanity that carries on a sinister business under the most holy assertions of love for humanity. The meaner the harshness becomes, or the meaner the baseness becomes, the more willing and pliant a tool it is in the hands of the tyrant. The small number of upright people will be smeared with mud. Their courage is called revolt, their discipline pharisaism, their interdependence arbitrariness, and their masterfulness arrogance. For the tyrannical despiser of humanity, popularity is the sign of the greatest love for humanity. He hides his secret profound distrust of all people behind the stolen words of true community. And remember that, the stolen words of true community. And if you know life together, you know the ways in which Bonifer warns about those who have dreams about community. While he declares himself before the masses to be one of them, he praises himself with repulsive vanity and despises the rights of every individual. You don't have to be particularly keen yourself to know who he might have in mind here. He considers the people stupid, and they become stupid. He considers them weak, and they become weak. He considers them criminal, and they become criminal. His most holy seriousness is frivolous play. His respectable protestations of solicitude for people are barefaced cynicism. In his deep contempt for humanity, the more he seeks the favor of those he despises, the more certainly he arouses the masses to declare him a, go to declare him a god. Contempt for humanity and idealization or idolization, idolization of humanity lie close together. So this this is what this kind of holy suspicion gives Bonifer. It gives him insight into the ways in which things that seem to be opposed are often, in fact, one, are often, in fact, at least closely tied together. And here he recognizes, and this is remarkably similar, similar to Hannah Arendt's critique of absolutism and fascism, that contempt for humanity and idolization of humanity lie close together. In other words, Hitler's idealizing and idolizing of the Superman, of the ideal, I'm trying to think of the word, it's slipping my mind, but the what, what Hitler imagines as the humanity that they should all strive for, a humanity that, that must be made through eugenics, a humanity that must be made through the societal stringencies that, that end with that the extermination of all those who are opposed to the rising of this humanity, that is barbarism, as Bonifer calls it. That is a, a kind of demonic contempt for humanity. And, and he recognizes this in what's happening around it. But if he can talk that way, kind of on the grand scale about figures like Hitler, he doesn't let us rest easy, right? He quickly comes back to what happens to those of us who are living day to day in the midst of the church's life, doing what seems to be good work. There is, however, also, this is on page 87, a sincerely intended love for humanity 
that amounts to the same thing as contempt for humanity, right? So he's just kind of scoured this image of Hitler. And now, while we're still uh, feeling protected, maybe, as his attention is on some exaggeration of evil like that, exaggeration is not the right word, the, the, this evil that seems exaggerated to us, he recognized it for the monstrosity it was, but an evil that seems larger than life for us. He then quickly pivots and turns the attention back on us and talks about the sincerely intended love that amounts to the same thing as contempt. It rests on evaluating human beings according to their dormant values, the health, reasonableness, and goodness deep beneath the surface. This love of humanity grows mostly in peaceful times, and this is a parenthetical remark you'll see, paragraph 74 on page 87, but also in times of great crisis, these values can on occasion shine forth and become the basis for a hard-won and honest love for humanity. With forced tolerance, evil is reinterpreted as good, meanness is overlooked, and the reprehensible is excused. For various reasons, one shies away from a clear no and finally agrees to everything. One loves a self-made picture of human beings that has little similarity to reality, and one ends up despising the real human being whom God has loved and whose being God has taken on. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of big-heartedness, a kind of liberality that seems to be loving, but because it refuses the no's that have to be said, because it forces tolerance even where evil is at play, it ends up dealing with a self-made picture that has nothing to do with reality. So I, I want to turn away from Bono for a moment to Cormac McCarthy. I'm reading his book, The Crossing, right now, which is the second in his Border Trilogy. And there's an exchange, I'd say roughly the middle of the book, between, it's a story being told to Billy Parham, who's kind of the, the protagonist, if that's the right word for who for what he is in the story. And Billy has, stum he's in Mexico, and he's stumbled into this small place, this what once was a village, once was a church, but once was a village with a church. And he's talking to a man who once was a priest. And this man is telling him the story of how he came to lose his faith or how he came to lose at least his understanding of his calling. And it's, it's all so astounding. And I'd love to read it all to you, but I obviously don't have time to do that. You, I guess I have time. You wouldn't have time to listen to it. The people of the town, and here, remember, the man telling the story is the priest in the story, and he's telling it to young Billy Parham about an old man who had suffered immensely and then come to this town, specifically to this church that was falling apart. And there begins his confrontation of God. The people of the town came and they stood about at a certain distance. They were interested to see what God would do with such a man. Perhaps he was crazy, perhaps a saint. He paid them no mind. He paced and muttered into his Bible and thumbed the pages. Overhead in the vault 
were frescoes depicting the very events he pondered. On the west wall of the dome, the clay nests of Galadrinas mortared up among the fading vestments of the saints. From time to time, in his circling, he'd pause and hold his book aloft and thump at a page with his finger and address his god at large. This is what they saw, an old hermit, a man with no history. Some said a holy man come among them, some a lunatic. Many were scandalized, who had not heard God addressed before in such a manner, nor seen God bearded in his very house. It seemed that what he wished, this man, was to strike some colendencia with his maker, assess boundaries and meets, see that lines were drawn and respected. Who could think such a reckoning possible? The boundaries of the world are those of God's devising. With God there can be no reckoning. With what would one bargain? They sent for the priest. The priest came and spoke with the man, the priest outside the church, the solitary parishioner within, beneath the shadow of the perilous vault. The priest spoke to this misguided man of the nature of God and the spirit and the will and the meaning of grace in men's lives, and the old man heard him out and nodded his head at certain salient points. And when the priest was done, this old man raised his book aloft and shouted, You know nothing. That is what he shouted. You know nothing. And then skipping just a bit ahead, this the priest continues to come and visit him, standing outside so that he's not under the, the vault that seems about to fall, where the man, the old man, is having his confrontation with God. And then the old man, this is just a few paragraphs down, the old man, by whatever instinct, stood on ground at once blessed and frightful, or fraughtful, this was his choice. This his gesture. All agreed his testimony was a powerful one. The strength of his conviction was plain to them. In his words, there was little measure and little restraint. In his new life, the libertine was out. Do you see? By his arrogance, he had engaged the living thing. On that perilous ground, he had made of himself the only witness there can ever be. And if some saw in his eyes the rapture of madness, what else would one look for in the one who had enjoined the God of the universe on the ground of God's own choosing. So he's facing off with God. And the priest, remember, the priest is telling this story. And the priest, a man of broad principles, of liberal sentiments, even a generous man, something of a philosopher. Yet one might say that his way through the world was so broad, it scarcely made a path at all. It was so broad, it scarcely made a path at all. He carried within himself a great reverence for the world, this priest. He heard the voice of the deity in the murmur of the wind of the trees, in the trees. Even the stones were sacred. He was a reasonable man, and he believed that there was love in his heart. There was not. Nor does God whisper through the trees. His voice is not to be mistaken. When men hear it, they fall to their knees and their souls are riven and they cry out to him and there is no fear in them, but only that wildness of heart that springs from such longing. And they cry out to stay his presence, for they know at once that while godless men may live well enough in their exile, those to whom he has spoken can contemplate no life without him, but only darkness and despair. Trees and stones are no part of it. The priest, in the very generosity of his spirit, stood in mortal peril and knew it not. He believed in a boundless God without center or circumference. By this very formlessness, 
He had sought to make God manageable. This was his calendancia. In his grandness, he had ceded all terrain. And in this calendancia, God had no say at all. To see God everywhere is to see him nowhere. So that that strikes me. I just happened to be reading that over the last few days. And it strikes me as astonishingly good example of precisely the kind of faux Christianity, false spirituality that Bonhoeffer is critiquing here, right? That there's a, there's a way of loving that is a love for humanity, but for no particular persons. And ultimately that turns in, into something deeply destructive. So let me, let me skip now page 241. In the chapter on history and good, the first part of that chapter, page 241, this is in paragraph 240. Love, as understood by the gospel, in contrast to all philosophy. And so there's, you know, you hear the that, that difference that shows up various places in, in the tradition between the, the truth as the prophets know it and the truth as the philosophers know it. Love, as understood by the gospel in contrast to all philosophy, is not a method for dealing with people. Instead, is the reality of being drawn and drawing others into an event, namely, into God's community with the world, which has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. Love, quote-unquote, does not exist as an abstract attribute of God, but only in God's actual loving of human beings and the world. Again, love does not exist as a human attribute, but only as a real belonging together and being together of people with other human beings and with the world based on God's love that is extended to me and to them. Then, next page. Every attempt to portray a Christianity of quote-unquote pure love purged of worldly quote-unquote impurities is a false purism and perfectionism that scorns God becoming human and falls prey to the fate of all ideologies. God was not too pure to enter the world. The purity of love, therefore, will not consist in keeping itself apart from the world, but will approve itself precisely in its worldly form. So here is the point that, that holiness is not what distances God from the world. Holiness is the way in which God is in the world, so that the world is the world. And the world is God's world. God is the Holy One in our midst, as Isaiah says. And holiness is that midstness, that, that being with us. And every account of holiness is that which is set apart, distinct from, as a way of saying that God is on the other side of a gulf fixed between us and him, is, is hellish. It's demonic. It's utterly at odds with what God has actually done in Jesus Christ. So he says, Bonifer goes on, talking now about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not, page 243, the Sermon on the Mount is not content with simply preparing individuals for their tasks in the community. Instead, it claims them in the very midst of their responsible action itself. It calls individuals to love, right? So the Sermon on the Mount is a call to love, which proves itself in responsible action, there's the language that we heard in the sermon, toward the neighbor and whose source is the love of God that encompasses all of reality. Just as God's love for the world is not limited, 
So human love that springs from the love of God cannot be limited to specific areas and relationships of life. It encompasses everything. So I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're already in the choir. And it's rarely a good idea to preach to the choir. But we have to rid ourselves of the lie that there's a difference between preaching the gospel and talking about social issues, between preaching scripture and talking about politics. That there are ways to do it, of course, that have to be true to the spirit, have to be true to the love that God is, the love that Jesus is. But the love of God encompasses everything. It addresses every part of life. It's unlimited and our love for others, if it is the love of God, is also unlimited. It's concerned about every part of their life, and not in generalities, but in specifics. Every specific part of their life matters to us. Their heating bill, their water bill, their physical health, their sex lives. You know, there's that, I can't remember now who I heard. I think I heard it from Hauerwas, but that any spirituality that's not concerned with what you do with your pots and your pans and your sex organs is not worth your time. That's not an exact quote, but it's pretty close. The point here is not that God meddles in things or that we should meddle in people's quote-unquote private lives. It is to say that to love others is to care about them in all of their lives. Right? Every aspect of their lives matters to us, matters to us. and we, we have to pray to that end, pray for that they, for them to experience the fullness of God's blessing, touching again every aspect of their life, and we, we, we won't. There's no kind of true preaching of the gospel that ignores where people live, how they live, the ways in which they're being cared for at their job or not cared for, the ways in which they're treating their children and being treated by their neighbors, and so on and so on and so on. Every aspect of life matters. And love cannot, cannot ignore any of that. And so that brings me to Herbert McCabe. And I want to read just just very quickly from his, his work on obedience. I've got to find it here. So wonderful essay on obedience in which he's... He's talking about what obedience is and is not. And if you haven't read Herbert McCabe, he's delightful, I mean, to say the least. Um, and I'm, and he's, he's focusing specifically on Thomas Aquinas's understanding of obedience. And in many ways, you couldn't draw a sharper contrast between two theologians than between McCabe and Bonhoeffer. But on this, I think they're, they're remarkably very much on the same page. They're remarkably synergistic. The relevance of all this to our topic is that our obedience, our solidarity with the community, is the way in which we find ourselves. Obedience for us is not a denial of self, but a discovery of self. For to say it again, obedience is not the suppression of our will in favor of someone else's. It is learning to live in community, in solidarity, which is simply learning to live. Obedience is not the suppression of our will, in favor of someone else's, it is learning to live in community, in solidarity, which is simply learning to live. Of course, to discover yourself is to unlearn as well as to learn. It is to abandon a notion of yourself that you had before, in favor of a new and deeper one. 
The process of the novitiate and beyond is the process of realizing that you were wrong about who you were, as well as the sometimes exciting process of realizing what you can be. We have always have to keep dying to the old self as we rise to the new. Any human relationship, any love, is a giving yourself away, a sacrifice, a kind of dying. That is familiar enough. Only he who loses himself will find himself, of course. So that those are lines from Jesus. Then skipping ahead, but this is a bit. This he's, Christ lived his whole life and died in total obedience to the Father, and yet was equal to his Father. This is the mystery of the Trinity, the very center of our faith. Now, our obedience, our relationship to the community, is not just like the relationship of God the Son to God the Father. It is a sharing into that relationship. Our obedience is the solidarity of friends with a common task. It is a question of human love founded on a common shared purpose. And then he goes on to talk about that that love is nothing other than the life of God shared with us, the mystery of the life of God shared with us in Christ. So you, you can see, I don't have to draw all the connections for you, or really any of them. You can see the insistence that Jesus is the love described in 1 Corinthians 13, obedience to the way of life Jesus lived and calls us to live in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, is a life in which we find ourselves by learning to love others the way that God loves them the ways that they are meant to love themselves. So that, all of that, brings us to his, Bonifer's critique of the Pharisee. So let's end with that, page 309. And I'm not going to be able to give this the kind of depth that it deserves. We're running almost to an hour now. And I don't want to exact too much of your patience. Although you are required to love. Not that listening is necessarily loving. That's just encouraging me. Page page 309, paragraph 311. It is the encounter of Jesus with the Pharisee that most clearly highlights the contrast of the old and new. In other words, the world as it stands out apart from Christ or seems to stand apart from Christ and the world as it is revealed and achieved in Jesus. The proper understanding of this encounter is very important for understanding the gospel as such. The Pharisees are not an accidental historical phenomenon of Jesus' time, but human beings for whom nothing but the knowledge of good and evil has come to be important for their entire lives. The Pharisee is the epitome of the human being in the state of disunion. Any caricature of the Pharisees takes away the seriousness and importance of Jesus' controversy with them. Pharisees are those human beings admirable to the highest degree, who subject their entire lives to the knowledge of good and evil, and who judge themselves as sternly as their neighbors, and all to the glory of God, whom they humbly thank for this knowledge. For Pharisees, every moment of life turns into a situation of conflict in which they have to choose between good and evil. In order to avoid wrongdoing, all their thoughts, day and night, are intensely focused on the unfathomable number of possible conflicts in, or, in order to think them through in advance, come to a decision, and determine their own choice. Innumerable facts have to be taken into account, weighed, and distinguished. The more minute the distinctions, the more indisputable the correct decision. That's such an astounding insight, right? That when you're pharisaical, and here he's saying, don't think of this 
in, in caricatured terms. Don't think of the Pharisees as these exaggerated figures of evil. You and I are the Pharisees, or at least we're likely to be. We're, we've been formed to be Pharisees. And the more minute the distinction, the more fiercely we have to defend what we take to be the right reading of that distinction. Life in all its variety is certainly taken into account. One does not demand the impossible. Special circumstances and crises receive special consideration. The seriousness of the knowledge of good and evil does not rule out leniency and mercy. Rather, such lenience is an expression of the seriousness. There also is no trace of thoughtless arrogance, presumption, or unexamined self-esteem. One is definitely conscious of one's own wrongdoings and one's duty to be humble and grateful before God. But of course, there are also differences, which for God's sake must not be overlooked. Differences between the sinner and the person who is striving for the good, between those who break the law with reckless disregard and those who do so out of pressing need. Whoever disregards these differences and does not consider everything in each of the countless cases of conflict, sins against the knowledge of good and evil. So this, this is what he means by legalism. So here's a, here's a place where if we had time, we could explore the contrast between what McCabe talks about as legalism and what Bonifer means by legalism. And I mentioned it briefly last time, I think, or the time before, the ways in which legalism is tied to magical thinking. But for now, I want you to notice how he's taking pains to insist that the Pharisee is an admirable person, a person who's taking right and wrong with utmost seriousness, who is merciful and lenient, but ready to be difficult when difficulty is required in the name of maintaining that difference between good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is what matters, and keeping that difference clear, guarding the boundary between good and evil becomes the concern of the Pharisee. So if we jump to page 326, <clears throat> I'm incredibly stuffy as you can tell, thanks to the weather. Page 326, it is evident that the only appropriate attitude of human beings toward God is doing God's will. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to do it. Only in doing does submission to the will of God happen. In doing the will of God, human beings completely relinquish any right of their own, any justification of their own. In doing, they humbly subject themselves to the gracious judge. Then on page 327, the mistake of the Pharisees was not their adamant insistence on the necessity of doing, but rather that they themselves did not get around to doing actual deeds. In Jesus' words, they say and do not do righteousness or justice. In demanding the deed, Scripture actually does not point people to their own capacities, but to Jesus Christ himself. In other words, it doesn't say you should be loving. It says love is like this, let love happen in you. Without me, you can do nothing. This sentence must be understood in the strictest sense, Bonhoeffer says. There really is no doing without Jesus Christ. Then he makes this astounding move, Paragraph 320, judging stands in absolute opposition to doing, and he picks up John, James. Right? So he's, he's been talking about Matthew 5 to, 5 to 7 and John 15, but now he shifts to James and insists that that's what James is teaching us, that judging stands in opposition to doing. 
Whoever accuses or judges a brother or sister accuses the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. James 4.11. There are two types of behavior with regard to the law, judging and doing. They are mutually exclusive. Those who judge understand the law as a measure that they employ against others, and they see themselves as responsible for seeing that the law is implemented. They thus place themselves above the law, themselves above the law. They forget that there is but one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. James 4.12 Those who, based on their knowledge of the law, accuse or judge their brother or sister in truth, accuse and judge the law itself. This, this is what he means by the Pharisee. All, and then later, lower, in paragraph 331, the doer of the law, in contrast to the judge, submits to the law. Only, and skipping down a few more lines, only by this exclusive focusing on one's own doing, the law, one's own doing of the law, without any ulterior motives, is the law given its authority and power. And then he comes from that, the bottom of that page, to James 1, 22. The hearer is always also the doer. A hearing that does not instantaneously become doing turns at once turns at once again into that knowing that gives rise to judging and thus to the disappearance of any doing. Hearers of the word, therefore, are not at the same time also doers necessarily deceive themselves. And, and the doing here is the doing of God's will. And God's will is the enactment of love. And love is the life of Jesus that brings the life of the neighbor into fullness, into the fullness God purposes for it, the fullness of faith, hope, love, the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit, the fullness that brings joy. And again, for, for Bonhoeffer, this is about joy. But he again attends, and I really am almost done here, five minutes or so, he attends to the ways in which it's easy to be misled by appearances. On, on page 331, paragraph 334, he says, we, we seek to clarify the biblical view of doing still further. No one, and he quotes Matthew 7 again, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Thus there is a kind of confession of Christ that Jesus rejects. There's a kind of confession of Christ that Jesus rejects because it is in contradiction with doing the will of God. Such a confession may even occur in a time when this is not at all fashionable, but possibly entails suffering and persecution. And here you can hear the 1 Corinthians 13, I give my body to be burned text in, in the background. Here too, one must not immediately think of conscious hypocrisy that covers the evil deed with a pious word. Instead, such a confession may certainly come from a personally sincere heart. In other words, people can be sincerely deceived convinced that they are doing the right thing for the right reasons, but in fact, they are living at odds with the will of God. They are, they are living unlovingly. Such courageous confessing may also be coupled with equally courageous and dedicated doing. This confession and this doing may result from a fully developed personal character, from what one has recognized as good and which one has therefore decided to support. And this, by the way, is why integrity is never, never enough, right? That's not the goal. The goal is not to be people of integrity. The goal is to be holy as God is holy. Integrity simply means I'm true to what I think is true. I'm true to myself. And of course, the goal is not disintegration. 
But integrity is in many ways worse than disintegration if it sets me against the whole, uh, the holy, and it will, and it will. Jesus will nevertheless reject this confession and this doing precisely because it arises out of our own human knowledge of good and evil. For what is being done here, in spite of an uncanny external similarity to the will of God, is really the will of the human being divided from God. Thus the will of God is simply not being done. Therefore no appeal to one's doing will help. Did we not do many deeds in your name? Matthew 7.22 Not even where one thinks the deeds were done in the name of Christ. Once again, it would be wrong to assume that alongside or mixed in with this doing there would also still be all kinds of human wickedness that make it unacceptable. No, precisely where the doing springs from the purest motives, where the most pious and selfless deeds occur, there the danger is especially grave that we are dealing with the ungodly antithesis to the will of God, to that which this doing bears an unca uncanny resemblance, but that in fact arises from one's own knowledge of good and evil, from disunion with God. So this, this I think, is, is perhaps one of the most important gifts that Bonhoeffer gives us. That is, he, he won't let us caricature Phariseeism. Or he, he keeps warning us against it. And he calls us to attend, again, to the ways in which sincerity can mislead us, devotion to the good can mislead us, that we can have faith that moves mountains and a, and a readiness to give our body for God's name and still not have love. And that the will of God is always the enactment of love. And love is not an abstraction. Love is not so broad that it leaves no path, back to the passage from McCarthy, love is particular, as particular as the will of Jesus, what Jesus wants said and done, what Jesus wants us to do in this particular moment for this particular person. And that, that is what the ethics of Advent is all about, right? Learning to do the will of God here and now for you, for me, for this person under these circumstances, what does love do here? And refusing to take any refuge in abstractions about good and evil, right and wrong, those who are with God and those who are against him. So I, I want to come back to the end of this talk in ne next time, reflecting a bit more on what it mean, what what Phariseeism is and how it touches us. But I, I think this is long enough. We've gone far enough for now. So if I don't, I'll continue this series, by the way, even on the other side of Christmas, which I'm sure is a violation of some, some rule, but we're not legalists, right? If I don't, if you don't hear from me again before Christmas, Merry Christmas.